0: Hi, this is Mish Hancock and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Dr. John Montevani. John is a child neurologist, founding medical director of Mercy Kids Autism Center, Clinical Associate Professor at Washington University and Nationally Recognized Autism Expert. Hello, Dr. John.
1: Hello. Thank, Thank you, you so Mish. much
0: for being here. Happy to be here. So, the, of course, you are in a field that is growing and interesting and huge. And there's a lot of people, you know, spinning out there with, you know, how there's so many kids that have autism and what's going on and what can we do to help this? And and I learned a great deal from your TEDx talk, and we we will get into that. But just you know, tell us. I mean, there's there's a lot of misinformation and what have you out there.
1: Yeah, so it's there because it's grown so much in terms of um, people's awareness of the condition. And and whenever I started in child neurology many years ago, it was considered a rare condition. Right. And we now know it's the most common neurodevelopmental condition. Um, by today's diagnostic standards that we deal with. So there's been really a seat change in terms of awareness and interest. And some of that is due to reclassification, recategorization, changes in definitions. So... I think that it's important for people listening to know that what we call autism today is different than what we called autism 30 years ago. Got 30 years ago, it was a very narrow condition that had a couple of hardcore characteristics that um, were inflexible. You had to have a certain number of these hard characteristics, complete aloofness, repetitive mannerisms that were quite severe, inability to communicate or to respond to your environment. So. At that point, the definition was uh, really centered around the most severely affected children. And of course, it was a different world. Uh, The awareness of children's development was much less than it was. And so children were being diagnosed when they were six or seven or eight. Um, But what's happened over the decades is expansion of our awareness that in neurobiological conditions, which autism is, meaning that... The difference in a child with autism from one without autism is the way their brain structure and function works. Okay. That's a response to the genetic underpinnings of their development plus the environmental input that plays off of their own interests and um, ability to respond. So it's a neurobiological condition. Neurobiological conditions usually don't just cause one variation. Okay. And so there's even plenty of interest, and I think appropriately so, around groups of individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum who are truly gifted in very unique ways. So the point is it changes the way your brain works. Sometimes that can be a slight plus, but to have a diagnosis of autism spectrum, you have to have an impairment in your ability to communicate in the social world, to understand and to read other people, and to get rewards from social opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So that's a neurobiological system that creates behavioral developmental variations. And we have to base our diagnosis on observation of those variations. There's no blood test or MRI scan or anything today That will allow me to tell a family whether or not their two- or three-year-old child has autism spectrum. Okay. It's a several-hour assessment with interaction and a lot of historical information from family about development, but some very structured um, procedures that we use in interacting with the child in a play environment to see where their interests are, to see how they respond, and to see how we can connect with them and how they're interested in connecting with us.
0: And and so and this is a lot of it right now is is an education, right? It's like it's like for the parent, you know, here yes your child is on the autism spectrum as they call they call it, and then here is what you as the parent need to do in order to communicate with this child or what your what like what kind of environment you have to create for them is that?
1: I think that's absolutely part of it. So I think the the way I think about it is that so all children have their own unique neurobiology, but if we, if we limit it to the conversation about autism spectrum, those children have certain commonalities in their challenges around building these social bridges of awareness and connection. Therefore, parents um, are better positioned to understand that this is the way their child's brain is made to function and is functioning, and also to learn the things that they can do to help build those bridges. But it doesn't stop with parents. I mean, I think all of us, the educational system, there are many yes. people that work in therapy, there are behavioral specialists, medical specialists, psychologists, all of whom work from this same platform of understanding the differences and in trying to build a healthy um, interaction style or at least an opportunity for that child to react and to respond to the social world. If they're going to participate in their world... right. Um, we have to bring them out, if you will. Yeah. Um, now, they can still hold on to some of their unique gifts and talents. Um, and many of my parents um, that who, whose children I care for would say to you, we would not change one thing about him or her. This is the child we have. This is the child we love. We recognize the unique challenges. We also recognize the gifts and the opportunities. And so... I think that the balance in terms of helping parents get over that um, crisis of concern, Mm -hmm. if you will, what's wrong with my child, why is my child so different and why is my child having these issues, to help them put a wall around that if you will, to say, here's what this is called. Many people are affected with this and your child's form of it looks like this. Here are the challenges. Here are the opportunities. Here's what you can do. Here's what we can do. And here's what we can do as a community or a culture to help to be sure we're taking advantage of all of the um, opportunities that come with this unique development.
0: And you know, and I, I I got to see your um your talk, which hasn't been released yet, still in editing, but I was I was watching it again and one of the things that really struck me was the thought that, you know, you're asking people to become an autism first responder. The that there are certain things that we the people can start to see within a child and say, Hey, you know, this child should probably be evaluated. And the earlier the better.
1: Absolutely. So they Part of where we struggled uh, many years ago with autism is we didn't have a deep enough understanding of the neurobiology of brain development in anyone, in typical babies or in babies that have special needs or difficulties. And so over the last 30 years, there's been an explosion in the science around what it is that generates and encourages and stimulates typical development. A baby does not come into the world... An old philosophical idea is they came into the world with a blank slate for a brain, and we now know that that's not the case. Right. They're born, the day they're born, they're already looking for ways to interact with their environment, visually, through sense of smell, through touch, and through sound. And so those babies come into the world programmed to interact with their environment. In autism, the neurobiology of that program is less robust. And so an infant who will later prove to have a diagnosis of autism spectrum is less visually, auditorily, motorically interactive almost from the beginning, certainly by six to 12 months of age.
0: Okay.
1: And this has been found through really extensive research on thousands of of families by looking at high-risk babies. So how do you know this? Well, we know it because if you have a child on the autism spectrum... Your next child has a higher risk of having autism. Wow. And so there's about a 20% risk for a sibling to be somewhere on the spectrum. Okay. It's important to say that two children or even more in the same family may have different flavors of autism. Right. One of them may have more impairment in their communication skills and another may have more impairment in terms of things like anxiety or more obsessive-compulsive characteristics behaviorally. But the point is they will still meet the criteria. Gotcha. So So some really gifted researchers with a lot of support from organizations like Autism Speaks and from National Institutes of Health have conducted research in looking at what are called baby SIBs. Um, And so the baby SIB study took families who had a child with autism, Mm -hmm. enrolled their infants from the very beginning in a sequential analytical process where the babies were evaluated every three to six months, sometimes with MRI imaging, in addition to behavioral and psychological and developmental testing. Okay. And so we now know that those features in the children who later turn out to be in that 20%. Right. Remember that 80% don't, but the 20% who do um, show characteristics under the first, under their, before their first birthday. So, a lot of the concerns you'll know uh, in the culture and um, in the popular press uh, and and sometimes uh, online have been that autism is somehow produced in children, whether it's by vaccinations or whether it's an adverse experience. And so... What this research has helped us do is to identify the early features, which has all sorts of benefits because we can start intervention very early to try to mold these developing brains and right. move them to a more socially interactive little child. But also, it's helped us move away from this idea that, oh, it must be the vaccinations because my child was yes. fine and then got Immunizations, and then
0: look what happened. Then here, right.
1: here we are, and so, so I think there's a lot of value to this sort of research. But this research has shown us that the typically developing baby is really the conductor of their own development.
0: Ah,
1: they're the ones who, in very brief interactions with a care provider, with a mom or a dad, they're the ones who initiate the eye gaze they catch the parent's eye gaze and then the parent looks at them and coos and responds right the baby whenever mom comes into the room and it's time for feeding the the baby will begin waving arms and legs they're excited right. they're, they they, yeah. they they see the source of here. this food yeah. coming Yay. in okay this is this is good <laughs> news so but the 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 point is is the baby does that then mom gets excited and is reacting to the baby right? And talks to the baby. Aren't you cute? What a sweet baby. And, right, And exactly. all of that sort of, it's a reciprocal two-way, very dynamic process. But the initiation process, surprisingly, comes from typically developing children. So the challenge in terms of children who will have later diagnoses of autism is that they're throwing out... Fewer of these cues and clues. Got yeah. It's completely transparent to the parent. They don't know this is. They don't know their baby isn't as active or reactive or seeking it. You
0: know, and I want to, and I do. I want to totally explore this. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back with Dr. John Montavani. But I totally want to explore that. This is important. We'll be right back. I am back with Dr. John Montevani, and we're talking about, I love the idea that the baby's the conductor. It starts with the baby, right? Correct. And that the parent may not recognize these things. And I totally get that because, you know, I, I, my daughter as a baby, you know, I didn't really understand a lot about what was normal and not normal until I was around other moms. Of course. And, and I remember at one point, like one mom had brought out a, a Feast of a meal for her child, and I was like, "That he eats all that?" Where my kid was basically living off banana smoothies because that's all she wanted, <laughs> sure. you know. But but I had no perspective that that was weird, you know, for lack of a better word, weird or or right. unusual or what have you, until I watched other moms. So bringing this kind of information forward, I think, is so important for parents if they're if they because they're, they may they have no idea, they don't have anything to base it on. Like, I'm sure the second child, they start to recognize pretty early, right? right? That's correct. Yeah. But the first child, so if the baby is not responsive, excited when you come in, is that what we're looking for?
1: Well, so it's, it's really all of the responses. So the things that we look for in young babies, we spend a lot of time looking at their eye gaze and are they looking at people's eyes? Are they looking at people's face? Are Ah. they very responsive? Now they should not only look, it's not just a, a blank stare. They should look and engage with their facial expression. Okay. And the healthy infant, the developmentally appropriate infant, is going to look and catch the parent's eye gaze. They're going to smile. They're going, their whole face is gonna brighten. They're gonna start wiggling their hands and their shoulders and their body. And so there really is this sort of um, response that the baby is generating and then the parent, in a a millisecond, these are not things that you think about. These are happening thousands of times a day as you care for a child. But in that instant, where your baby brightens and smiles at you and the eyes get wide and you see this big smile and then they make a little sound. That is the clue. Say, hey, mom, talk to me. Right. And then the, the natural response of, of an adult to a baby um, is to do just that. Yeah. If you ever watch, even people that are inexperienced with babies, um, you know, you can take teenagers, or you can take people that haven't had personal uh, child-rearing experience. You put them in an environment with a six to nine-month-old, typically developing baby, and before they know it, they're going to be speaking in high-pitched voice and yep. saying, "Oh, aren't you the cutest <laughs> oh, you're little so baby? Cute. Yeah, you're exactly. A baby. Right." And without even because it, we're programmed. The babies are programmed to reach out. We're programmed to react. Right. The reason this is so important, though is because this this dance, if you will, between the baby's initiation attempt and the adult or other person's response is building brain connections. So the challenge in autism spectrum is that the connections, the synapses of the brain in different regions and across regions of connection within a brain are less robust. They tend to be underconnected in certain areas and okay. overconnected in other areas. So what we want to do in these interactions is by responding to the baby, we're building synapses, we're building a connection between brain cells, which will develop then into systems of brain cells that work together into networks and then across regions of the brain. Now, this happens in a way that is biologically programmed because babies are programmed to build millions of synapses in the first few years of life.
0: Yeah, I, okay, you, you talked about that in your talk, and I was fast, it was like 90% of it happens by age three,
1: correct? 90% of the brain anatomy is set by age five. Okay. But if you look at the brain connectivity, the critical time window is honestly the first three years. I'll we extend it darn. out to about age five. But see, here's the exciting thing. The fact that that's a dynamic process, which is literally building the baby's brain, in front of us, gives us the opportunity to teach parents and to work through therapists and other skilled educators to try to um, morph those connections that aren't as robust as they need to be, try to build them in the areas where the baby's challenged. And so the premium on early diagnosis is all tied to the fact that we know these little babies come into the world with the brain ready to respond sending messages to a greater or lesser degree. Our job is to figure out the ones that need more help to build the connections in terms of their responses and their solicitation of responses, and to do that as early as possible when the brain synaptic biology is under genetic control as the most robust it will ever be in their lives, and that is the first five years. So we're very committed to trying to recognize early signs and symptoms of children who will later be diagnosed under the age of two. It's tough under a year of age. Researchers can do it. There are protocols that enable you to do it. But in the real world, we ought to be able to recognize most of these babies by age two and certainly by age three. Got yeah. While we've got a dynamic brain that wants to develop new connections in front of us and we can work with that. So early diagnosis is premised on effective treatment.
0: And do you have any advice? I mean, so I'm 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 seeing myself, you know, with someone that has a baby and I'm thinking this baby might need to be evaluated. You know what I mean? Do you have any advice on how you have that conversation with your friend or
1: I wish I had a better answer for that. It comes up and I, I've been it's asked a the question one. many times. Yeah. Because um, there has to be, whether it's your own health or whether it's relative's health or whether it's a concern about your child's development, there has to be a level of concern or awareness that can motivate people to act. Right. So if you have a situation where say there's a two and a half year old child that is your neighbor
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and it's a little boy and it's pretty clear that he's not really connected. He's not in the backyard playing with toys. Whenever you see him, he looks away from your face. Right. He's flipping his hands back and forth with repetitive mannerisms or turning in circles and he's not enjoying living in the world. He's sort of trapped inside of himself. So when you see that, even if you're experienced, if the parent or caretaker doesn't have a question, the most you can hope to do is to plant the seed of a question. Got yeah. I I think I think
0: that's good advice, though.
1: You step across and say, "Listen, I think your child has Sums autism." Sums up with your that, kid. That, yeah, right, right, right. No, yeah. that, that's never going to work no. out. So, but in the course of the conversation, say, "Hey, you know, I remember when my little girl was two, and." Boy, she was really, really talking. How's Joey doing? Is Joey is is Joey talking to you now and doing stuff? Well, no, he hasn't really talked, and and uh, we know that boys can talk later, so we're not really worried about that. Oh well, well, yeah, that makes sense. How is he playing? Does he, you know? Right now, you can't, you can't become the inquisitor.
0: Right? Yeah, you, yeah, you, you yeah. Know, it's I mean, there's, be a, it's done. A, there's a balance. There's a thing here, and you so, know. And. One of the
1: ideas that we had around the TED Talk was that if there are people who've never heard about much of this or don't mm-hmm. know as much about it for, for all sorts of reasons, and if we tell them time is important, if there are concerns, encourage your neighbor, your children, your nieces and nephews, whoever it is, encourage them to talk to an expert. Yeah, but you can't make it happen.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And, but the other challenges, you know, full disclosure. I think too often, um, people that are not experts, and this can include healthcare providers, this can include educators, this right. can include um, very well intentioned folks, will say, "Oh, don't worry about it." Yeah, that to me would be a place we could really improve. If anyone ever asks you whether they should be concerned about their child, mm-hmm. default to yes.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Then you get a, you get an evaluation. You want to try to find somebody. You start with a child healthcare provider if mm-hmm. they're um, young, because that's where most of that uh, conversation is going on. Um, but if, if the healthcare provider doesn't seem to dig as deeply... Um, or doesn't seem to be as concerned. There are all sorts of websites. The the Centers for Disease Control has a great website that people can go to, um, First Signs website, and it talks about typical child development. Educate yourself so that when you call attention to it, if you know that a two-year-old ought to have at least 50 single words that are not repeating but are generated spontaneously and a couple of word combinations like go outside or buy daddy. Right. If you know that that's where they're supposed to be and there's a two-year-old with two words who's not interested and who's not waving and who's not playing games or pointing, that's a red flag.
0: And I like that the thought of it it being, you know, like someone in the educational system or a healthcare provider because they are in a place where it makes sense for them to say, you know, we probably should get this evaluated as opposed to your neighbor. Right. Right? Oh, absolutely. Great information. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back with Dr. John Montavani and it's question time. Are you ready? I am. So I stalked you a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would like to talk about bubbles. Bubbles are a favorite of yours. Yes. Let's talk about it. Yeah.
1: Okay. So one of the things that, um, as we talked about uh, doing an interactive assessment or a play activity for a child brought to the office for an evaluation. So someone has a concern. There's a child usually between the age of maybe 12 months and age three. Okay. And so parent brings them in, says, we have these concerns. You go through all of that. But then I need to interact with that baby because I have to make my own decisions about the significance of the findings because some of these things can occur with normal variation. Other of are more significant. So bubbles was just something that I stumbled onto because... My children, my grandchildren, almost all children love soap bubbles. Right. So I simply started doing a process where I would take the soap bubbles and would blow the soap bubbles and then I would watch the kids' response. So here's here's one of the interesting things about soap bubbles. The key difference between, say, a two-and-a-half-year-old on the autism spectrum and not is that the child who's not on the spectrum realizes that I'm blowing the bubbles. So I I dip the stick in, I blow the bubbles, and then I wait and I look at the child. And what I want the child to do is to look at me and say more bubbles. Ah. So they should look me right in the eye, they should say more bubbles, and then they get more bubbles. That's gotcha. the reward. Gotcha. Very often the child on the autism spectrum will look at the bubble jar. They the way their brain works, they saw the soap come out of the jar. Right. But they disconnect from the person's interaction with, to make the bubbles occur. And so they stare at the bubble jar. They reach for the bubble jar. They try to take the stick out of my hand and put it in the bubble jar themselves. Not realizing that by simply asking me, I can be the mediator of what they want. So that lack of social connection right. of true understanding. So anyway, that's how I got into playing with bubbles. And it's um, there's no single test. I don't want listeners to run sure, out and sure, do this sure. with but their this children is, and try right, right. to make Everybody's a judgment. Gonna be, there's going
0: to be yeah. a run for bubbles after
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point is a joy in interaction and the joy of the interaction, not just for the task, right. but for the person in the, and the person. task. You can do the same Got, thing, yeah. playing catch, right? rolling a ball back and forth, right. stacking blocks. What we're doing is we're looking for the child to connect with us and not just the with thing. the task. Right,
0: gotcha, gotcha. That is fascinating, I love that.
1: It's a practical thing that it takes you know two minutes in the right. office and you get a lot of information
0: unbelievable. Um, so when did you decide, I'm going to be a doctor? Like, how? When did this happen, that, that first little spark that this is what I'm going to do?
1: It goes back so far, I'm not sure. Uh-huh. The, the, the myth in our family uh, was that from the time I was five, I always said I wanted to be a doctor. Now, I don't know if that's really true, um, but we didn't have any doctors in the family. Um, I hadn't had any experience except with my own interaction and I didn't have serious illnesses as a child. So how I stumbled on that, but sometime very early in life, I saw an opportunity there that I wanted to participate in. And then uh, I I was so fortunate. I was blessed in a lot of ways, but one of the ways was I was never confused about what I wanted to do. When I was in grade school, I knew what kind of high school I wanted to go to and what subjects I needed to take because I was already thinking about going to college wow. and moving on. Now, at that time and at that age, it was not a very sophisticated thought, right. but it made it easy because if, if you're choosing electives in school yeah. and somebody says, well, what, it's not, what would you like to take? So, I probably missed some opportunities for things that I would have enjoyed very much because I was very goal focused um, on on getting there. And so where that um, it must have come from my family, it must have come from experiences in early life, but I can't recall exactly where
0: that's interesting, but that that you were goal oriented so young.
1: yeah, it made um, a lot of decisions as I was we were going through and a lot of friends and, you know, the angst. Right. Where do you want to go to college? What do you want to major in? And then after that, what do you want to do with that and all of that? And I think by and large, uh, I don't know if this is a fair characterization, but I've uh, raised three kids and have six grandkids and and have seen a lot of children in my practice. I think generationally, we were a much more goal-directed generation than mm. what I see in The younger folks, in terms of,
0: I think there's too many choices now. I think you're right. You know, and they've even done studies about the whole too many choices thing. There, there was a study done with jelly one time where it's like the people were like, "Hi, we have thirty different flavors. Which one would you like to sample?" We're like, "No, thank you." And then they had three, and people are stopping by and checking it out. Right. And I think for kids now, there's so many different ways you can go. It's it's mind boggling.
1: Yeah, I think, and the awareness. You know, whenever I was being raised. we had very limited um information coming into our home. I mean there were three television stations, you know, yes. and, and there was a, a daily newspaper. Right. And, you know, you talk to your friends and your acquaintances, but we were not citizens of the world yeah. in, in the way that people are now. And right. therefore, to your donut metaphor I probably only thought there were three donuts. I mean, I was, you know, I thought, well, okay, I'll take this donut. The, the being right, a doctor right, donut right. looks pretty good to me. Right. Um, because I didn't have the uh, the vision and the idea of how many opportunities were out there.
0: So I said jelly and you said donuts, so I like this. We've got jelly donuts going on. I think this is a good combination. Exactly, <laughs> and exactly. And one of the donuts people can choose. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right, so I have one more question that I really want to ask you and and for you I mean so you're um like what what does Dr. John do to unwind? what is your ah, breathing time i mean you're- you're working with parents that are very concerned and you're working in a system where there's so many as you put spectrum, there's so many different variances sure. and yeah what's your happy time well, so I think um m-
1: within the profession within what i do for work i do about five or six different things so i really enjoy that so we participate in certain types of research i'm on some national and statewide committees where i meet with people so it's work but that's kind of fun work it's like it's not like i'm in the. Room with a child and a family right, uh, right, right, 7, right. forty hours a week. so um, I've really enjoyed being involved in uh, medical publication activities and done a lot of that. in terms of things that are separate from my role as a physician because uh, you know I'm a husband and a father and a grandfather and all the other things that go with that um, it, it they're all family things for the most part it's it's really, um, enjoying. My wife accuses me as we watch the grandchildren grow. She said that when they're 18 months old, 20 months old, I do a little mini neuro exam on them, <laughs> well, <laughs> and she says only she can realize what I'm doing because it looks like I'm playing with them, you know. Right. But but you
0: know. But of course you are going to you know, do that. <laughs> but,
1: but I don't mean to say that my interactions with them are always around those issues. Right. But we're all of our um, children, our grandchildren, all live within a few miles of us. In oh, St. Louis County,
0: nice.
1: so they're around a lot. We see them all a lot. We participate in their lives, and then my wife is a, a community actress, and so she's very involved in the theater. And so we do a lot of those types of things. But
0: it's, that's right. She talked about it when I met her at TEDx about the different plays that she had been yeah. in and what have you.
1: And so that's been uh, an interesting. Avocation for in fact years ago I even directed a play so it really was, yeah n- not You're terribly like well man. I must say uh, <laughs> what I wasn't play I wasn't asked direct? to come back uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a play we brought from Canada I'm trying to remember the name it's 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 called the Long Weekend but it's not the movie the Ray Milan movie okay the Long Weekend and it was a it was a very Neil Simon esque play about two couples that, okay and of course my wife was. Was in the play. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. So, uh, she
0: knew the director. She well. knew the director. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: but so those are things that um, we enjoy. Big, um, uh, big reader, of course, and not not. I, I like history a lot. Gotcha. So I read a lot of those things. Um, so I managed to keep busy.
0: Good. Well, I got to tell you, I i mean, on behalf of TEDx, thank you, because I can't wait till your talk comes out and more people get to see it. It was just so amazing and very insightful and very necessary. Um, but thank you for coming on here today. Thank you very I much. I totally appreciate for your me. time. I know you're a busy man. So thank you.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks.
0: And for everyone out there, you're listening to Mishmash Podcast. Check us out on iTunes. Subscribe. Have wonderful days. Love you all. Bye.